Are we on testing in Pacoima? Okay. Well, I always like to begin with an altar call, right? So, and I like everybody to participate. So how about a quick picture? You got to move down here in the middle, though. And where's Kevin? Isn't the birthday guy supposed to be in the picture? I don't know. Okay. Amy, I asked Arch how old he is, and he said 26. I said, oh, to be 26 again. Wouldn't that be nice? I've seen two 26s and then a few more. So <laughs> it's hard to believe, isn't it? I don't know how this happens. It just sneaks up on you. Wow, look at this. Okay, we got to get the picture quick. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, is that how you messed your hand up, uh, jumping on his back? Okay. One, two, three, cheese. All right, thank you. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James, which is toward the end of the New Testament, after Hebrews, before 1st and 2nd Peter, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we're going to be looking at James 4, the last verses in the chapter, the last five verses in the chapter, verses 13 through 17. It's a fairly famous passage, but... It's one that we may not have given as much attention to as we should. I know it's one that I find convicting. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In 1969, and I realize many of you in the audience weren't alive in 1969, but... For those of you who were this skinny quarterback with bad knees from the University of Alabama playing under Bear Bryant, Joe Willie Namath, or Broadway Joe Namath, he was the quarterback for the upstart uh, New York Jets. And they were playing the mighty Green Bay Packers. And there was really no possibility they could win the Super Bowl. But Joe Namath came out and said, we went, was it Baltimore? Okay, Baltimore. And he came out and said, well, some, we have difference of opinion, but we're going to go with Baltimore. Okay. Anyway, whoever it was, Namath said, we're going to win. <laughs> and they were big underdogs, no way they could win. And yet, Namath came out and played a great game, and his team played a great game, and they won the Super Bowl, Super Bowl three, And... It was remarkable that they won. Now, Namath didn't come out with a reputation as 
being a big braggart and someone who was arrogant and uh, someone who was, uh, you know, overly negative, but he came out as a person who was bold, a person who was brave, a person who was courageous, a person who had the guts to back up his prediction with a, uh, a victory. Since then, that's become pretty popular. Muhammad Ali came along later. Well, originally Cassius Clay, then he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and he came out with I'm the greatest. And he, was, he would not only predict beating people, but he would tell us what round he would knock them out in. And generally he fulfilled his predictions because he could have knocked them out in any round he wanted. <laughs> and so he would just keep them standing up until he decided it was the right round to knock them out, the one he had predicted, and then he'd knock them out. In fact, the movie Rocky was based on him fighting the Bayonne bleeder. And, and the guy, well, he didn't take him out until the last round. And uh, so the, that was uh, the inspiration for the movie. Well, lots of people make bold claims. But what we find from the book of James is for the Christian, we should not be boasting about what we will do in the future. That's not appropriate. Even if it motivates our company, even if it motivates our country, even if it motivates our team, even if it motivates our family, we should resist making guarantees of what we will do in the future. Now, the book of James, I believe, was the first book written in the New Testament. Not everyone agrees with that, of course. But Zane Hodges has written an excellent commentary on James in which he argues it was probably written in 34 A.D. Now, Jesus rose from the dead in 33 A.D., meaning James may have been written within a year of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason that Zane Hodges suggests this is because we don't find any Gentiles in the church to which James is writing. And there was only a short period of time in the early church when the church was made up of Jewish people only. And Gentiles were not rolled into the church yet. And so during this time, this seems to be when the book of James is written. James has a lot of wisdom literature in it. It's a lot of the kinds of things we see in the the, uh, books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and that sort of thing. For example, even in the passage we're in where he talks about life being a vapor, well, we find that in the writings of Solomon, that life is indeed a vapor, that we're here for a very short time and then we're gone. And being 54, and it was just last week, I was 24, I can tell you that life is indeed, from my perspective, a vapor. And my mother, who's 93, tells me that it only goes faster the older you get. Every decade rolls faster and faster and faster. So James is a wonderful book, and the outline of the book is stated in 119. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Well... Swift to hear is 121 till the end of chapter 2 to 226. That is, we're to be people who not only hear, but do the word of God. Chapter 3 is slow to wrath. We're to be fast to something, that is to take and apply God's word, but we're to be slow to, I mean, slow to speak in chapter 3. 
Chapter 3 is all about the tongue and the control of the tongue, and it's be slow to speak. And then chapter 4, 1 through 5, 6 is all about being slow to wrath. We're not only to be slow to, with the use of our tongue, but we're also to be slow with our anger, with our wrath. And that's because our anger does not produce that which God desires, his righteousness. And the verses we're looking at fall in that section of being slow to wrath. And what we're going to see is that boastful arrogance produces wrath. Boastful arrogance is not something which makes us slow to wrath, but it's something which tends to produce wrath. And so as we look at this passage, I think we will see some very practical application for all of us today. To be reminded that indeed our lives are fleeting. To be reminded that we don't control the day of our death. To be reminded that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what later today holds. We don't know how long we'll live. Regardless of how vibrant our health is today, we could die today. Of course, all of this takes into account as well that the rapture could occur as well. Well, first of all, let's look at James 4.13. And in 4.13, we get the boast. Now, these are believers in Jesus Christ who are making this boast. And James says, come now, you who say. Well, what do they say? They say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. We're going to buy and sell, and we're going to make a profit. So they're predicting a successful trip, how long they'll be there, what they're going to do. They're going to be involved in commerce, buying and selling, and they're going to return having made a profit. Now, we're used to this sort of thing today. Don't people make predictions all the time and they state what they're going to do? And yet what James says is we can't state it this way. It's fine for us to have an objective, to go to such and such a city and to buy and sell and to attempt to make a profit. But unless we keep in mind some words that occur in the verses which follow, then we're really arrogant and we're really not keeping God in the equation. Now, the reason for that picture, you may wonder. Well, Jeremy picked it, and you know what that fish is? Well, I don't either, but he told me it's a puffer fish. Is that what it's called? See, this is the thing when you preach, people then correct you. So tell me, is this could be some kind of iguana fish or something? I don't know. But I think it's a puffer. It puffs its body up to scare its uh, enemies and th things like that. Well, this fish is a boastful fish. And we're not supposed to be boastful believers. We have everlasting life. But do we realize that until we go to be with the Lord, and in fact, until the rapture occurs, we won't have glorified bodies? So that the bodies we have are not bodies which are permanent. They're impermanent. They're mortal, what the Bible calls mortal. And they're fleeting. And as a result, you and I cannot make an accurate boast about the future unless God allows us time to fulfill it. If God chooses, he can put a kibosh on us. What happens if Joe Namath had made that prediction and he had a Ben Roethlisberger accident? 
Well, he wouldn't have played in the Super Bowl. What happens if he died before the Super Bowl? What happens if he had an illness that wouldn't permit him to play in the Super Bowl and so on? You don't know what the future holds. And that's what verse 14 is saying. What's the problem with the boast? Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Well, now, what's the implication here? Somebody knows, but it's not you. (laughs) Who knows what will happen tomorrow? God, right? God's omniscient. God knows the future. You're not omniscient. You're not God. You don't know the future. You know, one of the things I like like us to remember and I like to remind myself of is Jesus Christ is everlasting life, right? Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and I have the life, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is everlasting life. But you and I aren't everlasting life. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we have everlasting life. Do you see the distinction? He is it. We have it. (laughs) In other words, John 6.47, Jesus said, He who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, that's not our physical life in the here and now. For example, in John 11, Jesus said, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's the promise of resurrection. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the promise of life. That's why he starts out John 11:25 with, I am the resurrection and the life. As the resurrection, he guarantees us, even though we die physically, we'll rise. Uh, and he also guarantees we'll never die spiritually. So Jesus is the life we're not. Jesus knows the future we don't. The only thing we know about the future is that which he's chosen to reveal in his word. So the problem with the boast is, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears appears for a little while and vanishes away. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to forget that. And we need to be reminded of that. We tend to think, well, wow, I've got, you know, 80, 90, 100 years to live. Well, the truth of the matter is, 80, 90, or 100 years is a vapor. It's like that. You remember that before Adam and Eve sinned, they were designed to live forever in these bodies. Well, not these bodies, but uncursed bodies. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, there would have been no death. Nobody in the human race ever would have died. But because they sinned, death entered the human race. And except for Enoch and Elijah, everybody else has died. Everybody else has experienced death. But there was another thing that occurred. After they ate of the forbidden fruit and they introduced death into the human race, people were living about a 1,000 years. Adam lived 960 years. Methuselah, 969. People were living just short of a millennium. Then an event occurred in Genesis 6 when the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men and God decided to bring the flood and destroy the entire human race except for Noah and his family. And after the flood, there was a precipitous drop in the lifespan of mankind. Under the curse, the lifespan was up to a 1,000 years, let's say. 
After the flood, the lifespan dropped tenfold to about 90 or 100. And now we live in an extremely fleeting life. I mean, a thousand years would have been short, but now we get 100. And in some cases, we don't know. We may get 10, 15, 20, 50, 30. We don't know exactly how many years we get. In any case, life is very fleeting. This wasn't God's original design. It wasn't his intention, nor is it going to be the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day, and we're going to have glorified bodies, and we're going to live forever with no more death and no more pain, no more suffering, no more orthopedists. Well, there may be orthopedists, but they're going to be retrained <laughs> to do something else in the kingdom because we won't have these problems. And I'm going to be joining Arch on the motorcycles and he calls them crotch rockets and, and the uh, sea dews and the hang gliding. And I may do jumping out of planes without a parachute. Just, yeah! And then it'll be like the cartoons. You just get up and go, you know? But right now, that's not, I, can't, I don't go on motorcycles because I already have enough orthopedic pain and I don't need to add to it. And I don't do hang gliding or, you know, whatever it is, even though I'd like to do all those things. They'd be fun and they'd be cool. And I have friends that do all those things. I'm just not brave enough to do those things. But the problem with the boast, again, is we don't know. Do you remember what happened on February 1st of 2003? Yeah, the space shuttle was coming in. And as it went over Dallas, where I live now, the shuttle broke up. And as it was going across East Texas, it dropped parts of the shuttle and the people on the shuttle all over East Texas into Louisiana. And it was a terrible thing because not only did we lose people who we expected to live, but it put a real... Uh, disaster on the whole space program. And it was several years before we did it. In fact, I live, an earlier disaster with the space shuttle program was when Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher, died on takeoff when shortly up in the air uh, the shuttle blew up. And I have a middle school near my house, I mean, an elementary school near my house called the Krista McAuliffe Elementary School, named after her. And, you know, the U.S. government has billions of dollars to put in the space program. And yet even the government can't say on February 1, 2003, we're going to launch the shuttle and it's going to be in the air this many days and it's going to come back and it's going to land safely. Because truth is, it didn't come back and land safely. It came back, but it didn't land safely. It broke up. Because even all the power and might of the federal government couldn't guarantee that. And truth is, now when we're flying, I, I fly a fair amount, and in light of the plot they discovered in uh, London, now you can't even take hair gel on the plane. See, that's the problem. Uh, I mean, you can't have, you know, toothpaste. I mean, what am I going to do, squirt toothpaste on the pilot or something? I don't know. But now you can't have toothpaste and you can't have hair gel and, you know, what, what's next? I figure the day is coming when you just won't be able to check any bags or carry any bags. You're just, if you want to fly, you fly, and then you can ship it separately, I guess, or something. I don't know. 
But right now, they still let you take some things on. But the point is, we can't be sure of what tomorrow holds. That's beyond us. And death is something that we all face. If the rapture does not occur before our death, then we'll experience that vapor. I know here in this church, we experienced the death recently. And death is something that is part of our human experience. And we need to realize that death is a reminder of the fact that God knows and we don't. That God knows when our days are up and we don't. And so the psalmist says, teach us to number our days. The wise person is one who knows that I have right now, but I have no guarantee of tomorrow or six months from now or six years from now or 60 years from now. My call is to be faithful. My calling is to be faithful as many days as God gives me. And if I live as long as my mother and I'm still alive 39, 40 years from now and I live into my 90s, I'd like to still be faithfully serving the Lord and pleasing Him as much as I can. But the truth of the matter is I have no guarantee I'll live as long as my mother or that I'll even be alive tomorrow. I may get on the plane back to Dallas tomorrow and that could be the end. And if it is, well, then that's beyond my control. That's in the area of the secret, sovereign will of God. And that's the alternative to boasting in verse 15. In verse 15, we read, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. There's the key four words. If the Lord wills. I'm not sure what this you know, picture is meant to illustrate. It looks like there's water on the road and a tornado over there on the left and the car is going right into the tornado. So maybe it means if the Lord wills, the guy is going to make it safely to his destination. I'm not sure. But the point is, if the Lord wills is something we need to use when we're talking about our plans. When we're making plans and predictions about the future, we always need to keep this in mind. Now here the will of God is not the moral will of God. We're not talking here about the commands of God to do this and don't do that, to be a person who loves your neighbor as Christ loved the church, for the husband to love your wife as Christ loved the church, for the wife to call her husband Lord and to submit to him and this sort of thing. We're not talking here about the moral will of God. We're here talking about the sovereign will of God, that which is going to happen. And we don't know it. And that's why he says, if the Lord wills, because we don't know if we'll be alive a year from now to go to such and such a city to buy and sell, make a profit and return. We may not live a year. That city may not live a year. That city may not exist in a year, etc. So we need to have if the Lord wills in there. And what that means is we realize that the future is in God's hands. Now we have certain things we know are true. We know mankind is not going to be destroyed. And whenever I hear scientists talk about mankind destroying itself or whatever, I know that's wrong because the Bible tells me that Jesus is going to return at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and he will not allow mankind to be at annihilated, but for the elect's sake, for Israel's sake, there will be a remnant of Israel that's alive and believing at the end of the tribulation, and we'll have Israel going into the millennium. 
But except for those things which God has revealed to us, we don't know the future. And so God gives us principles in Scripture to guide us on what to do. He gives us, as I talked about in Sunday school, inbounds areas. These are things, jobs, for example, you can do, and out-of-bounds areas, you know, don't be a pimp or a prostitute or something like that. But there's all kinds of inbounds areas. But what James is talking about here, if, the God, if God wills or if the Lord wills, is about the area of the sovereign will which is secret. How many more days do you have to live? You don't know, and I don't know. Do you know, I don't know if you've studied this, but I was watching a special uh, about uh, some engineer had done a study of car accidents. And did you know if, if you're an American citizen, well, you don't even have to be a citizen, but if you live in the United States of America and you drive, your odds of dying in a car accident this year are 1 in 3,000. In other words, if you had a church of 3,000, you expect every year one person's going to die in a car accident in that church of 3,000. Did you know your odds of dying in a car accident in your lifetime are 1 in 60? One out of every 60 people in the United States dies in a car accident. And it makes sense. I know people I went to high school with that died in car accidents. You know, relatives, friends, loved ones. Don't we all know people who've died in car accidents? Cars are very dangerous things. And truth is, we don't know exactly how long we're going to live. Life is fleeting. Life is like a vapor. Now, I don't know if you remember the wide receiver Vance Johnson, but Vance Johnson made a prediction. I guess he was inspired by Joe Namath, and he guaranteed victory over the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, unfortunately, the score was 55 to 10, with his team having 10. <laughs> and uh, he didn't quite uh, fulfill his boast. Len Bias was the number one draft pick of the world champion Boston Celtics. This was Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. And Len Bias was this awesome college basketball player that looked like was going to allow the Boston Celtics to continue their dynasty. And Len Bias decided to celebrate doing cocaine. And he died that night, a young man, 21, 22 years of age, extremely fit, and he took cocaine and he died as a result of taking the cocaine. Now, there's questions whether this is the first time in his life he'd ever had cocaine or not, but that's not the point. The point is, he was a person who was expected to be great for the Boston Celtics, to be great in the NBA, probably a Hall of Famer, and he never played a day for the Boston Celtics or for the National Basketball Association. Now, I don't know if he boasted to his friends, I'm going to be great, I'm going to be awesome, but... If he did, it was a mistake because he didn't live to play a single day in the NBA. You know, when we're young, we tend to have a lot of hubris. We tend to think we're invincible. You know, we can't possibly die. The older we get, the more we realize that everything starts falling apart and, you know, we start having surgeries and, and these sorts of things. And, you know, we're taking lots of medicines at every meal. And you're like, what's up with all this? And it just gets worse. I went, I was eating with my mother recently, and they bring pills to them while they're eating meals, you know. And the, the man she was eating with had like six or seven pills he had to take with uh, dinner. 
And she, my mother has two or three she has to take with dinner. I mean, she's got so many pills. They've got to give her, you know, morning pills, lunch pills, evening pills, bedtime pills. Well, okay, you're not impressed. But anyway, <laughs> the truth is there's lots of pills. That's why she's 93 and still alive is because she's got all these pills. Me too. I mean, I'm already taking lots of them. Now, notice what we find in verse 16. Boasting is arrogant and evil. Now, but now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, countries can do this. The United States was boasting victory in Vietnam. We didn't have victory in Vietnam. If we're not careful, we'll be boasting victory in Iraq, and we have no guarantee of victory in Iraq. It would be great if the leaders of countries would say, if the Lord wills, We'll go to this country and we'll engage the enemy and we'll have victory. But if not, we won't. And companies do this. Companies come out Enron before it went down. They were making lots of rosy predictions about their future, even as the leaders of Enron were busily selling their stock. Uh, a sad, sad kind of situation. Uh, and, you know, we should all remember 9-11. 9-11 was something that the power of the U.S. government didn't stop. And Katrina. We didn't stop Katrina, nor did we stop the main ramifications from it. And we need to realize that all of our plans are contingent on the will of God. And notice James calls this arrogance. You boast in your arrogance. We would all be wise to say, look, even if I can make more money by being a person who guarantees things and who boasts things, I'll make less and not guarantee things and not boast. Because that's arrogant, and that should not be the Christian way. And even if we're working in a secular company where the people all curse like sailors, we should still say, look, I'm going to do my best to get this project done in time, and if I have to work overtime, I'll do it. I'll do the best I can, but I can only do what God gives me the power to do, and I'm not even guaranteed I'll be alive tomorrow. So I'll give you my best effort as long as I'm healthy and have life and strength, and I'll try to achieve this. And if the secular company you work for, if that isn't good enough for them, well, too bad. You're doing the best you can do with what you've been offered. And arrogance and boasting and all of this, even though our culture holds this up as a virtue of a person who's bold and a person who's daring and a person who's going somewhere and knows where they're going and is leading others with them, truth is that should not be the Christian approach. Our approach should be if the Lord wills. Now verse 17 seems to be out of place here the concluding verse of this section, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That seems to not fit. Well, we need to remember that sin is not merely doing the wrong thing. That would be a sin of commission. If God says don't get drunk with wine and you go out and get drunk with wine, and by the way, don't be a legalist there. Scotch qualifies too, or vodka, or cocaine or heroin or anything else, if you get high on anything, that's a sin of commission. But then there are also sins of omission. 
And Zane Hodges, in his commentary on James, says, We dare not omit from our conversation the recognition that not only our lives, but all our activities are as fragile as a wisp of smoke. We must acknowledge that God alone can enable us to do whatever we hope or plan to do. Notice, if we omit that, that's a sin of omission. If we're called by God to say, if the Lord wills, and we omit that, and we say, I guarantee victory, I guarantee we'll go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year, we'll make a profit, and we'll return, then that's a sin. It's a sin of omission, omitting the fact that it's if the Lord wills. So therefore, to him who knows to do good, that is to say, if the Lord wills, to acknowledge that, and doesn't do it, to that, to him, it is sin. So we need to be people who are acknowledging the will of God in everything that we do. And by the way, this isn't based on some impression. Some people think, well, God's impressing you to go witness to your neighbor. And if you don't do it, that's sin. <laughs> that's not the point. Unless the Bible has some verse that says you're supposed to go and witness to your neighbor at this particular time or this particular point, then, hey, if you, want, if you get opportunity to witness to your neighbor, great. But it's not a sin of omission if you don't witness to your neighbor today. But it is a sin of omission if you don't acknowledge God in your plans. If you don't say, if the Lord wills. Now let me just say that James isn't talking about helpless fatalism here. You know, this guy's kind of looking up at the sky and he's like, you know, well, whatever will be, will be. You know, what is that? Kesara, Sarah, yeah. That's my French for today. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, the Calvinist falls down a flight of stairs and says, thank God that's over. Because it's like he has no control over it. When I was in seminary, a guy had a big motorcycle, like someone else we know has a big motorcycle. And he was driving it into seminary and got in a major accident on the uh, expressway uh, and broke his femur in like three or four places. Had to have a rod put in there and I guess screws and pins and all that. And had this big cast all the way, you know, down his leg. And we, we had a prayer and praise chapel, and Dr. Walford was still alive at that time. And this guy stood up on his crutches and said, I just want to praise God that I haven't missed any classes as a result of this accident. And I want to praise God that it wouldn't have mattered what vehicle I would have been in when I was coming to seminary that day. If I'd been in an 18-wheeler, you know, if I'd been in a tank, whatever I was in, I would have broken my leg in exactly the same places and I'd have exactly the same cast and everything else. Praise God, as soon as I get this cast off, I'm going and getting another Harley or Goldwing or whatever he had, and I'm going to raise, ride that motorcycle to seminary to the glory of God. Well, after the meeting, I noticed, yeah, I see Arch is smiling, so that's good. <laughs> Carolyn's got a smile, too. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, this wasn't Arch, by the way. This was somebody else. Uh, but the point is, this afterwards I saw Dr. Walvard, who was probably in his 70s at this point, and several of the other people talking to this young man about the fact that, hey, it's okay to ride a motorcycle, but you take a certain amount of risk. That you may not have broken your leg if you had been in a Mack truck uh, or a tank, 
you know. And I used to drive one of those little Honda, you know those little Hondas, I think they were 1400 cc's or something. It was no seat belts and it was just this little thing I had to fold into. It was like a clown, one of those clown things where you kind of get in and you get out. And I was getting great mileage, of course this was back when gas was only a dollar a gallon or something. Uh, but, you know, it, I got it real cheap, and I drove it for a couple of years while in seminary. I look back on that, and I think, that was pretty stupid. I mean, I had no seat belts. If I'd been in an accident in that thing, I could have lost my legs. I could have been killed. It wasn't real smart. Now, it worked out, but it wasn't real smart. Now, that guy, as far as I know, did not get another motorcycle. Uh, you know, Arch would say, because he's a wimp. <laughs> but, but regardless... This guy didn't get another motorcycle. But the point is, James isn't talking about helpless fatalism. What James is talking about is the fact that we make decisions, and we make decisions as best we can to do those things which we believe are honoring to God. But we realize that God is the ultimate determiner of what happens. Indeed, I could be in a huge, I could get a Hummer, not a two or a three, but a one, you know, one of those big monster Hummers, and I could die driving that Hummer. In fact, I could die before I even hit anything. I could have a heart attack driving. I, a friend, the, that situation occurred. And you just don't know. Point is, we're not in control, and it's not helpless fatalism. What it is, it's the recognition that God is sovereign and I'm not. Hello? Right? He's the one that's in control. And by the way, another thing is, James isn't looking for every sentence to start with, if the Lord wills. You know, honey, when, when's dinner? Well, if the Lord wills, it's going to be in 45 minutes. <laughs> Dad, Dad, when do we get to Grandma's? Well, if the Lord wills, we'll be there in three hours and seven minutes, you know? Hey, professor, when is class over? Well, if the Lord will, you know. No, that can be super pious, right? That can be like now we're so religious that every sentence has if the Lord wills in it. It seems to me what James is saying is occasionally this expression, if the Lord wills, ought to creep into our conversation, but it always ought to be in our thoughts. Are you with me? Always, I should think, everything I'm doing is contingent upon the fact that God gives me my next breath. God grants me the opportunity to continue to live. Uh, my mother was 39 and a half when I was born. And she thought, and not a believer, but my mother thought, I sure hope I live long enough to see my son graduate from high school. And then when she did, she was hoping to live long enough to see me graduate from college uh, and then grad school. And now here I am, an old man, and she's still alive. So it's kind of funny how those things work. But even though my mom wasn't a believer, my mom had the attitude that her life was a vapor. And when she was 39 and a half, she realized there was no guarantee she was going to live another 18 years. Now, she's lived way beyond that, but she had the basic attitude James is talking about, even though she wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, Art Farstad was a good friend of mine. He was the lead editor of the version of the Bible I use, the New King James Version. And Art used to do editing for Grace Evangelical Society, projects I had. 
And it was so funny, he was left-handed and he wrote with really big letters, reminded me of Paul, see with what big letters I write, as he says in Galatians 6. And he would sometimes put DV at the end of a manuscript. Well, you know what DV stands for? Oh, I guess it's up there. Well, if it is, then it's a clue. What, was it up there? DV is Deo Valente. And Deo Valente means if the Lord wills or if God wills. Deo, God, and Valente wills. And the point is, this used to appear in some of the manuscripts of some of the great uh, concertos and things that were written by the great composers. They would put DV on them, recognizing that their ability to write these great compositions, these, these great scores, was based on the fact that God gave them enough life to complete them. And I like that from art. And occasionally you might try that, write DV on something. You know, if God wills, if the Lord wills. But the main thing is not that you're going around saying if the Lord wills all the time, but that you live in light of that. That you're a humble person and you realize if the Lord wills, yes, maybe you'll have two, three, four, five children, whatever. And maybe you'll live to see them graduate from high school and maybe you'll live to see them graduate from college. But all of this depends on what the Lord wills. And if it's the Lord will that I die this year, then that's cool. Because it's not my call. It's his call. And if he comes to me like he came to Hezekiah and said, it's your time to die, I'm not going to ask for 15 more years. Because <laughs> it really messed Hezekiah up when he had Manasseh as a son. And Manasseh was a horrible king. And Manasseh was born after that time when he should have died. So it seems to me when it's God's time to make the vapor that is your life to go, we don't need to cling to this life because... If we believe what Jesus said, we know one day we're going to be resurrected and we're going to have a glorified body with no pain and no suffering. So in conclusion, let's have a humble heart and a God-centered mindset. Yeah. Now, I don't know who that guy is, but he's happy, right? But he also knows his limitations because he's not very big. And you stepped on him, you'd squash him. So... He's got a humble heart, and he's got a God-centered mindset. And that person never forgets that God is in ultimate control. God is sovereign. And this person remembers that our plans are in his hands. And so when God gives us more life, then sure, it's fine for us to make plans. We should make plans. I have, I keep on my laptop plans out 25 years. I have things I hope to achieve. If the Lord gives me 25 years, I have 25-year plans, 20-year plans, 15-year plans, 10-year plans, 5-year plans, 2-year plans, 1-year plans for things like my spiritual life and my health and my ministry and vacation and family and all those things. I've got plans in there. But the truth is, all of those plans, I realize, are subject to Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. Make plans, sure. The James doesn't say anything about it's wrong for you to plan. If you're a business person and you don't make plans, you know, the old thing is, if you don't plan, <laughs> you're guaranteed to fail, pretty much. Uh, the thing is, if plans are fine, but keep in mind, if the Lord wills. And that's a humble heart. That's not an arrogant heart. That's the person that says, my life is in the hands of God. So remember that the four words, if the Lord wills, especially that attitude, 
They're a key to the growing Christian life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much.